I decided when I was seven years old that I wanted to be a barrister. And there was nobody in my family that was a barrister or anyone around me that was a barrister either. But I was inspired and I set my mind on it and I investigated how you become a barrister. I didn't have any support or knowledge from my school, which I'm not going to blame them because they didn't have many aspiring barristers there. But I did investigate it, and I remember having a meeting with a careers officer who took notes from me telling her how I was going to become a barrister. <laughs> um, and then I, I obviously did study and very much enjoy it, so that worked out very well. But I think one of the best tips for anyone, and certainly what I did, was from about the age of 15... I did work experience in a local solicitor's firm and that actually meant that I was going to court working as an outdoor clerk taking notes in Crown Court trials and I used to do that in the summer holidays and I did it when I was 16 and 17 in the summer holidays and went to court and went to barristers chambers and went to Middle Temple and went to the inns and did all of that when I was still studying at quite a young age and it only reinforced my desire to pursue my career at the bar but it gave me a lot of information and nitbits and nuggets of just sort of daily life at the bar and so when I was a bit older I then started doing mini pupillages. What a fabulous introduction Elaine Banter welcome to the pupillage podcast. (laughs) I'm Beatrice Collier and I'm Georgina Wolfe and this is the pupillage podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, from those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting, so in each episode we talk to junior barristers fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench and lots of other guests and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid and how to succeed. Today we're talking about choosing your pupillage. This is easier said than done. First, you have to choose between the employed bar and the self-employed bar. Do you want to be in-house at a law firm or within a business? Do you want to practice in a large mixed chambers or a small specialist one? How can you spot the good sets? How do you know where to pitch yourself? These were just a few of the questions we asked our guests on today's Pupillage podcast. We heard from Julia Horner, director of Blackstone Chambers, in an earlier episode but today she gave us the bottom line on life at the independent bar. I think anyone coming to the bar has really to grapple with the idea of being self-employed. And it is very important to know yourself to an extent. Is the fact that your mortgage doesn't get paid, if you have one, ultimately, uh, doesn't get paid from a salary which comes in monthly critical to you or not? Is it something that's going to make you worry? Because the nature of the bar is if you don't work, you don't get paid, you don't eat. I mean, it's as basic as that at its most basic form. And 
that's quite hard to deal with. It's perfectly possible to make an extremely good uh, living at the bar, but you have to be prepared to cope yourself with the, the pressures that that creates. Some people thrive on it, and others find it harder. I think whichever category you fall into, it's really important that you understand that that is an issue which has to be addressed. And cash flow can be frightening, or lack of it. Um, and you have to slightly be prepared to cast your bread upon the waters and wait for it to come back to you um, tenfold, hopefully. <laughs> we then asked Elaine Banton, who rather astonishingly decided, age seven, that she wanted to be a barrister, what she considered to be the benefits of being at the independent bar. So Elaine, turning to the question of choosing your pupillage, you practice at Seven Bedford Row as a member of the Independent Bar, and I wonder if you can tell our listeners what the benefits of being at the Independent Bar are. Yes, well, I'm definitely going to talk about the Independent Bar because I have no experience of of being a, a member of the Employed Bar. So, and certainly my heart is very much taken by the Independent Bar and all the challenges and experiences that it has to offer. I think it's a career that combines different aspects. So what really appeals to me is that there's all different issues that come into play. Obviously, a great aspect of it is being an advocate and being in court and uh, being able to run cases and develop cases and take those to appeal, for example, which I find fascinating. But there's also a lot of writing involved, and if you enjoy writing, you'll be, you may have the opportunity to not only do your paperwork and draft claims and do advices and such like, but also to write articles and maybe write books as well, which I've been involved in. So there's so many different facets to it. It's also a very sociable career, I think. There's lots of opportunities to meet people and engage with others, and that's also a very interesting aspect. But I would say that one of the most appealing aspects of the independent bar is the flexibility it affords you. The fact that you can go to court, finish, you can go home, you have opportunities to work from home. I myself am able to work from home and conduct telephone hearings from home and conferences on the telephone with solicitors and clients. Also, I've done those from home as well. So it really does afford a lot of flexibility. And I found that really came into its own when I became a mother at the bar. And so I've been able to combine um, really being involved with my two children and still working at the bar um, full time. But I've been able to do that with a career that has flexibility inbuilt into it. And so, for example, I'm able to say to my clerks, can you make sure that conferences and chambers are booked around 10, 10.30, so I can always do the school run and then get to chambers in time to do a conference. And something as simple as that just means that my job is so much more easy to do and enjoyable. So I would really commend practice at the independent part in terms of its flexibility and its inspiration and excitement. Uh, for everyone. It it really does afford um, a level of flexibility that is so helpful to uh, plan your working day when you are trying to combine um, parenthood and working at the bar. So when it comes to choosing your pupillage, 
one of the things that I think you need to think about are really what are your priorities? What sort of life do you want? Do you want to be based in London or, or in the regions? How much are you going to earn? And part of that is choosing your practice and choosing which practice area you're going to um, practice in. But it also um, comes down to choosing what sort of pupillage you want and in, in which chambers. Do you think that's, that's fair? Yes, I think that's absolutely fair. You have to bear in mind that different chambers have different arrangements in terms of how you practice. Some chambers are very, very wedded to particular areas. So depending on the work you do, you may be exclusively in London or you may be in circuit and travelling every day on the morning on the train and working on the train and coming back later in the evening and that suits some people they really enjoy that but it may not suit everyone so it is quite important to think about um, the areas of 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 practice but also the the way the the travel for example that the practice will also involve so do consider that as well your chambers is, is Seven Bedford Row, which is a mixed common law set. I've heard sets like that referred to as being the holy grail for students because you offer so many different opportunities and different practice areas for those who haven't quite made up their minds what they what they like to do. What do you think are the benefits of starting your career at a mixed common law set? I think it's a great advantage to be exposed to different areas of law when you are um, still deciding that. Now I say that having been someone that was very clearly decided on what they wanted to do at a very, very young age. And I had decided at still quite a young age that I was going to practice in medical negligence. And then through my pupillage, I actually decided that I wanted to do human rights and employment law. So I changed my mind, even though I did a master's in medical law and ethics. And I now am at a chambers where there is a great practice in, in that area, but I still do employment law and discrimination law and human rights. So I think that is an example of the fact that you may have a very strong inclination to an area, but when you actually do your pupillage, you get exposed to different areas and you work on different cases and you decide, oh, I really like this area of law. So having the opportunity to, to get practical experience in different areas is, I think, an advantage because you may find that you want to do other areas or you may find it, it reaffirms your existing choice. But either way, I don't see it being anything but an advantage. What about knowing how to pitch yourself to chambers? So what I mean by this is um, how do you have some confidence when you're making an application that you're going to be, uh, um, you've got the right qualifications and the, the right experience to be appealing to a particular set of chambers? Well, I think it involves quite a bit of introspection and looking at yourself and analysing your CV the areas that you're interested in, the experience that you've gathered along the way, and seeing if that matches up with the particular set that you're exploring. You know, if you have had lots of experience working in different projects that may have involved criminal issues or human rights issues, then you might want to apply to chambers that have a lot of emphasis in those areas, for example. Um, so it, it may just be a question of working out what your strengths are and trying to play to those strengths by matching yourself with sets that are 
very much focused on those areas as well. So it's important to have a, a good, long, hard look at your yourself, your CV, what you've done so far, and be realistic about how that is going to appear to um, whichever sets you're, you're thinking about applying to. Yes, absolutely. I think you really do need to start off by surveying your CV and evaluating the strength and depth of the experience that you have had and are seeking and looking at which areas are very strong, looking at areas which might not be as strong or might be a little bit weak and really playing to the strengths that you've you've seen and trying to develop those areas further in your applications and, and really put across on paper. It's really an exercise in advocacy in itself, how you express and sell yourself on your application form. So students might have looked and found one chambers that they think is their dream set should they only put in an application to that set or should they apply to others they they should absolutely (laughs) apply to other sets you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket Um, resist that temptation as I said you may be absolutely certain that you want to do this particular area of law in a very very niche set of chambers but you do not want to tie yourself just to one application Um, if it's not successful you'd be extremely disappointed so of course it's better to make applications to different sets um, and of course the pupillage gateway allows for a number of applications so I think they should be looking at making several applications to different types of sets so maybe some specialist sets and maybe some more mixed practice sets and maybe a couple of sets in areas that you haven't even yourself thought about um, as being areas that you absolutely want to practice in but it may surprise you so I think having a broad spectrum of applications is going to be more helpful. Elaine Banton thank you so much for coming to speak to the Pupillage podcast. Thank you it's been a pleasure. Jessica Lee emphasised the importance of sorting out the relevant from the irrelevant when conducting research on your options. Master Jessica Lee, we talked to you in our episode about choosing practice areas about your family law specialism, but today we want to talk about choosing your pupillage. And one of the first questions that students will need to think about is whether to go to the independent bar or the employed bar. You're at the independent bar. What does that mean? So for me, um, that means a combination of of responsibilities for myself in terms of my finances, um, to a great degree, to to my practice and where that goes. But it also gives me freedom. So that combination to me, it, it suits me, but it isn't right for everybody. So I operate with those additional freedoms and choices. But as I say, at the end of the day, it's then for me to ensure that I'm Financially, that's, that works for me, that I'm in a set of chambers um, that I'm happy with and that, that is working for me. So it gives, for me, a freedom that suits me and my personality and my life setup. But what I would be very clear about is saying to people, that might be some people's view, they may even think that's the traditional view of the bar, but the world has changed beyond recognition and there are so many now places that you can do pupillage um, that doesn't mean you'll end up in private practice you're at the employee bar with all of the benefits that that will give you that will give you that structure that will give you the 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 workforce around you um and those employee bar terms that will for some people make their life and their setup whatever that is so much more viable for them and work much better for them so 
don't think of now, because pupillages have been opened up so much, uh, if you're interested, make sure you find out if any particular area or businesses within it are now offering or could offer pupillage or should be offering pupillage. There are so many chambers out there, it can be really quite bewildering for someone sitting at their, sitting at their computer screen, visiting website after website. How do you suggest that our listeners start narrowing down to try and find out where they might want to direct their applications? I agree to start with, I'll say it is overwhelming, I think, actually, and I think it is difficult to know. But hopefully, listeners, what they've already started to do is do their own groundwork The way to be a successful barrister, in any case, when you have 3,000 pages turn up, it is sorting out the relevant from the irrelevant. Okay, that is how you're going to get through your case, get your main points and hopefully win your case. Fine. You need to apply that from the outset with this pupillage, with your pupillage applications. So actually, I would have thought it would be quite depressing, frankly, or slightly slightly soul-destroying to just sit there and go through websites day after day. That is just one component part into the world that you're trying to get into. And actually, for me, um, a website does tell you a lot of factual information and certainly gives you the image that the chambers are giving and so on. We've had a, a, a physical move of chambers this year. We've done a brilliant new website. We're very proud of our new premises, and we're able to show that. Um, But the actual brilliance of my chambers, I would say, is getting to know us as people. Well, that has to apply to to any set and to any person looking to apply for a set. You are not going to fit in and be happy somewhere if it doesn't suit you overall, your personality. You don't understand how that place ticks. So... That is then to do with your research. It's detective time. It's sorting sorting out that relevant from the irrelevant. That is going around, doing mini pupillages, but it's also getting to meet people, um, networking. You've got to make sure that you attend events. There are opportunities for students. There's mooting, whatever it is, but make sure when you do meet people, you ask them about their chambers, you find out about their chambers, and you ask them if, if you could find out a little bit more because that is going to be how you understand the world that you're wanting to, to move into. It was a world I didn't know anything about um, in terms of background and so on. I had to learn about. Um, and and I just think that there's no substitute for that. So don't just stick with a computer. So you need to find some humans. You do, yeah, definitely. It's all about human behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> Qualifying sessions, I suppose, are one way of meeting some humans. Are, are there any other suggestions that you have for where you might be able to find some barristers to speak to. I think there's a a couple of things that you need to do. The qualifying sessions are important. And although you're also bonding with your fellow students and so on, make sure you meet the barristers who are there and the benchers who are there because we're all here to support you and learn about you and to help you. So um, we look forward to it too. Um, You also need to, I would say, take an active role in the Students' Association or your sport, whatever your interests are as well. So look at the Middle Temple students, as if that's your in. You also need to look at if there'll be junior bar for, for netball, for whatever it is that you're interested in. Find a group and link up with it and get to meet people through that too. Um, there's also the sponsorship scheme, which Middle Temple offers. Now, this is going to be a vital component. I remember my sponsor still. Um, in fact, I've appeared in front of him uh, he's, he's, as a judge part-time now. Um, but he, at the time, was so helpful to me um, and offered me very candid and direct advice, but was also extremely supportive when you're going through this process. So... 
and ask people, you know, ask people if they have any opportunities for sponsorship or um, informal or formal or can do they act as any, offer any mentor schemes. Keep asking people um, and don't limit yourself to just the qualifying sessions. Another place that you might catch a barrister in the wild is at a pupillage fair or a chamber's evening. Is there a way to impress at those sorts of events? Well, I think... To be perfectly honest, I think when, it, when it's a scenario where barristers are meeting a high volume of, of people, it, it can be quite difficult. We would acknowledge and accept that it would be quite difficult to... Uh, and nor would we expect people to try and make an impression. It is not an interview. But I, I would see it more from the student's or the applicant's point of view, the benefit of those situations, actually, to information gather as much as they can. Um, so it's not so much about trying to impress, save your, your efforts in impressing for yeah, mini pupillages absolutely. and for pupillage interviews. 100%. And yes. use chambers evenings or, or pupillage fairs to go and get as much information from the barristers that are there about their practices and their lives as possible. I think that's absolutely right. Of course, occasionally you might click with somebody or there might be a topic that then evolves into a really interesting... Fine, and that's great. But don't be hard on yourself if you just feel you went and asked them a couple of questions and not much more. That's, that's also OK. And I suppose it's also a useful opportunity to collect all of the the leaflets and the merchandise that chambers have because those are the leaflets that are actually designed for pupils chambers websites will mostly be designed for solicitors so you might find you get some further useful information from the the hard paper copies of documents at those fairs I definitely think that's right. And I would also take into account that the people from those chambers who will probably be on the pupillage committee, you know, they are genuinely interested and motivated in trying to find, um, you know, the next generation of great barristers. We want you to join us. So we're there for, for positive vibes and positive reasons. So do go and talk to people. What do you think about questions about income, Master Lee? Because that's can be an important consideration you're going to embark upon a career you need to know that you're going to be able to make a living how do you think that our listeners should go about finding out the nuts and bolts about how much money they're going to earn I think that's a very good question and it's one that we don't talk about uh, enough and I understand when people are in private practice and their um, their earnings aren't put on a website um, it isn't it's a different situation but I would have no difficulty at all with somebody asking me, really, how much they're going to earn and how is this going to work. I, I think that's important. I think that's a conversation that, in fact, we all need to have a little bit more. I think people should be more open about it. Um, because unless you know if that is a financially viable option for you, how can you proceed with that? Where, for example, working in-house, where there's a salary structure on a website, fine, you understand that. So I would encourage, I think that's, I think we all need to show maybe some more, uh, reflect a bit more, maybe show some more leadership on that, you know, at the bar. Obviously, whatever people are comfortable with, you don't want people to be uncomfortable. But I would have no difficulty uh, with people asking. I think they do. I think we try and give as much information as we absolutely can about what you're likely to earn, say, at the junior end. That has to be, I think that's critical information. Um, but I just think in general terms that, that, that those conversations should be more open, you know, and people should be able to ask well, how much genuinely would I get a brief for that or how much would I expect to get for that and what, what cut out do Chambers take or what, what do I go home with at the end? These are important questions. I think the way to go about it is to sort of caveat it by saying, I, I you know, obviously I don't know whether your Chambers 
release information or would share information about what to expect at the junior bar. But if you are in a position, if your chambers has a policy about that, um, then, you know, would it be possible to find that information out, please? We hear later in this episode about pupillage opportunities outside private practice. But for those of you who are already set on the independent bar, we go back to Elaine Banton to hear her advice on how to go about that research and start choosing your chambers. Could you tell us a little bit about what your practice is now? Right. Well, I practice at Seven Beaufort Road Chambers and I practice in across all of employment law, which includes discrimination law, equalities law, and also intersection of, with human rights law. So it's quite a broad area of practice. And our, our listeners are, um, as you know, thinking about becoming barristers, wanting to get pupillage what advice do you have for them as to how they should go about choosing their chambers yes well I think it's really important to research the chambers out there that you're considering are they covering areas of law and practice that you want to actually practice in as well so it's very useful to spend some time looking at the chambers websites and seeing what areas they practice Also, you could look at the legal directories and see which areas of law they are rated in or recognised in. But um, do do check out their websites quite thoroughly. And if you do have an opportunity, you may be able to apply for a mini pupillage and test out what they're like um, that way. Because from what you were saying earlier, Elaine, it sounds to me like you started the information gathering process incredibly young because you rather amazingly wanted to be embarrassed from the age of seven, which I find extraordinary. Um, Would you agree that it's all about gathering as much information you can from as many sources as you can? It is, absolutely. And that includes, you may have friends or family members that, that could be connected to the bar in some way. They may not be barristers, but they may actually have a connection to the bar. And you may be able to ask them for information as well. And don't be uh, afraid to reach out uh, in different areas and in diverse sources. It, It may not necessarily come from a website. It may come from one of your mother's friends, for example. So I think that's really important to think a little bit outside the box and see if you can get information elsewhere. Have you any tips for... Uh, trying to work out what information sources you can trust because uh, obviously websites are extremely useful but it's also right to say that they are probably first and foremost a marketing tool aimed at solicitors so um, how can our listeners distinguish between what's put out uh, what's put out there on websites and what is the truth about a particular set of chambers I think that can be a little bit harder to do from the outside in. I think the first port of call is looking at the website um, and maybe matching that up with what's said in the directories because it may actually say that particular set is specialised in area A but not area B. So that may be a way of double-checking that. I think obviously doing a mini pupillage is going to be very helpful in terms of getting a a broader picture of what the the Chambers does as well. Um, and you may have an opportunity to, to meet individuals who are members of those chambers. If you're going to the qualifying, qualifying nights at the inns, for example, it's an opportunity to meet other barristers as well and talk to them about what areas of law they practice in in their particular chambers. 
Did you find your in was a useful source of information when it came to choosing your pupillage? Um, yes, I well certainly they, there's a lot of resources that you can obtain via the inn um, and you can obviously speak to people at the inn and you can attend functions at the inn and meet barristers as well. So it is definitely a resource worth looking at and seeking help from. And, and what about pupillage fairs or chambers evenings? Are those things that students can use to research chambers? Absolutely. I think pupillage fairs are, you know, a very useful resource. It's an abundance of information where if you've done some of your homework beforehand, you can be quite strategic about sounding out particular chambers and what they've got to offer for pupils. So I think that's going to be a very valuable resource. Um, So that's the pupillage fair Sorry, and the, and the, the chambers, chambers evenings. Well, I think that that's also a very, very good resource because you get an opportunity to go physically inside a set of chambers and meet people who are obviously working there and can give you, again, more information and more insight about the bar. And really, I think as much information as you can gather is going to be an advantage to you because you'll be better placed to know what you really want to do. Elaine, what about questions about income? Because after all, it's important to people to understand how much they might be earning, certainly at the outset of their career, and then what their potential for earnings is as they continue up and go through life and acquire financial responsibilities. Do you think that's something that our listeners should be asking at chambers evenings or pupillage fairs or mini pupillages? Um, I think that's a little bit more uh, of a complex issue. I think that a lot of chambers have information about the likely predicted earnings um, during pupillage and after pupillage. So I think that is going to be obviously a really good resource. And also the inns, I think, also have information about um, predicted earnings at the junior end of the bar. Of course, an individual can ask an individual question, and it's going to be up to them, uh, you know, in terms of the response they give. But I'm not sure that they will get a very accurate response, because, for example, they may be asking somebody that actually doesn't have the full information about that, because they may be at a different level in their practice, and they may not actually know off the top of their head how much a junior, a very junior member of Chambers, is likely to earn straight out of pupillage. So um, whilst I can see it's tempting to ask them, and if they want to ask the question, ask the question, but uh, do bear in mind that the answer may not be 100% accurate and it, you are, it's probably a good idea to do a bit of research in terms of what Chambers' websites say about the likely earnings um, and, and also the inns. In the inns episode, Michael Harwood told us about what the Middle Temple Young Barristers Association has to offer. Here he shares his advice for choosing your pupillage. Michael, you are a employed barrister. I am. Can you explain to our listeners what an employed barrister is and how it's different from practising at the independent bar? Well, I suppose the, the first distinction is probably the most obvious one, which is that um, you are employed by somebody, as opposed to a self-employed barrister who is a member of chambers who 
ultimately is responsible for sort of cultivating their own practice. So I, for example, am employed by Her Majesty's government, um, but you can get employed barristers really all over the place. You can have them working in firms for sort of local authorities, those sorts of things. Um, yes, I suppose the, the key distinctions will be that in many ways I am... I, I sort of have a contract of employment, I have a salary which I get paid every month, annual leave, all those sorts of things. But in, I don't have that same sort of necessarily flexibility and autonomy that a member of the self-employed bar in terms of sort of charting your own direction in terms of the work that you have. So I work as part of a team of lawyers um, at Her Majesty's Treasury and we predominantly give legal advice to members uh, of like policy clients within the Treasury. Do you get to do any advocacy? In my current role, very little. Um, and I suppose that's another important um, distinction, I think, as a general rule, and um, there are obviously exceptions to this, but as a general rule, employed barristers are going to spend less time uh, in court. So I'm, my current role is very much as an advisory lawyer. I sit within uh, the Treasury and provide sort of legal advice to my policy clients. And yeah, that, as I say, that's probably true across the piece for most employed barristers. You will tend to spend less time in court. So can you explain what, what your pupillage look like at the employed bar? Mm. So the way that um, a pupillage in government works is that um, I spent my first six, uh, effectively, I guess, as a, as a litigator. So I was um, put into one of the many litigation teams within um, the government legal service. And the particular bit I was working for was on the sort of immigration side. And you're really, as I say, you're, you're, you're basically acting as a litigator, so managing a fairly substantial caseload. Um, and um, that sort of stems a variety of different tasks, giving, giving advice, um, liaising with counsel, um, drafting, lots of drafting, corresponding with the other side, that sort of thing, and obviously attending hearings as well. At the end of that, I then went on secondment for six months um, to a set of chambers. Whilst I was there, obviously doing work for my pupil supervisors in chambers, lots of written advices, drafting pleadings, that sort of thing. But I did get to do some advocacy as well, so uh, GLD instructed me to attend the immigration tribunal and I... Um, did some oral permission hearings in judicial review claims. GLD being the government legal department. department yes. yeah. We heard some more about pupillages at the Employed Bar from Saha Faruqi. Welcome, Saha Faruqi, to the Pupillage Podcast. Thank you very much for coming to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. Saha, you're an employed barrister at DWF. Can you tell our listeners what that means? So traditionally, barristers are self-employed in chambers up and down the country. So a set of barristers' chambers is a collective of individuals who work in the same building, often the same practice areas, uh, and they're clerked by uh, a team of clerks, but they're all fundamentally individuals. They identify as being members of the same set of chambers. The employed bar, um, and when you say that, people generally think immediately of institutions like uh, government legal services, um, CPS. The employed bar is actually a lot wider than that. And as an employed barrister, I mean, you can't really get more simple than that. It does what it says on on the tin. You're employed by uh, a company, normally um, in private practice, I suppose, a firm of solicitors. And that's what we do. So I'm employed by DWF Advocacy Limited. And the difference, I suppose, is that I'm not paid by the case. I am paid an annual salary, which is paid in in monthly instalments. Day to day, the reality of 
my practice, having been in chambers uh, as a self-employed barrister and having been with uh, a firm of solicitors, I can tell you it's exactly the same. So DWF now offer pupillages and we'd, of course, like to like you to talk about those because our listeners are no doubt going to be very interested in that opportunity. But perhaps it makes sense for you to tell us a little bit more about DWF advocacy. OK, so, so DWF advocacy breaks down um, into a number of different component parts. Because the LLP is a full-service legal business, DWF advocacy has also had to become what is analogous to a full-service chambers. So um, we've got people doing um, RTA, um, catastrophic personal injury work. RTA is road traffic accident? It is, yes, sorry. That work which leads um, sometimes uh, or separately into work like inquests. Uh, and then um, there's, there's my area of practice, which is um, almost exclusively international arbitration. So we do a whole range of work, and there's a whole range of experience within that. It's not complete yet, so we haven't got silks uh, at the top end. But at the junior end, in fact, we're more junior than, than Chambers because we take people... Uh, and some of your listeners will be particularly interested in this, we take people who are post-BPTC but pre-pupillage. They come to us uh, and they get really unparalleled advocacy experience because um, the fee earners within DWF are used to instructing people at their level. So they get to go into uh, the county courts up and down the country every day when it comes to employment work, where rights of audience are not an issue, we've had advocates who've been suitably trained doing eight-day hearings, which they just wouldn't get in chambers even post-qualification for, for several years. So at the junior end, we have um, those advocates, and then we put people through different processes of qualification. Historically, because we've not been able to offer pupillage, those have been um, either the LPC route which is essentially somebody cross-qualifying as a solicitor, becoming a solicitor advocate and then cross-qualifying back to the bar, or um, the Silex route. But now, uh, as you say, the real exciting thing for us is that that we've moved um, into a position where we're able to offer pupillage for the first time. So for our listeners who are thinking about what to do with, if they've got a year off before they start pupillage and are looking for something to do, this is actually the sort of experience that they could get that would be second to none. Absolutely. Um, and again, historically, we've, we've taken people, in fact, who, who've had pupillage already when they've, they've joined us for that year. Honestly, um, I think the view that we would take now is probably slightly different because um, we are in a position to offer pupillage. We would want somebody joining us who takes a more longer-term view of it than um, because it, it's a frustration to train somebody for uh, several months and then you know they, they they leave. And to be fair as well, if you've already got pupillage, you should probably step aside and let <laughs> somebody else um, who wants to acquire that experience work their way through. So DWF are going to offer pupillage for the first time. They are yes. What's that going to look like? Um, so this particular pupillage that we're offering and it is the first one and I mean that it's the first one it's not going to be the last one we are uh, hoping really by the end of next year to be offering around three of them because I'm only a few months off myself from being eligible to qualify as a pupillage supervisor so I will do that one of my other colleagues is already doing that and by then we're already at three but this particular pupillage is going to be heavily focused on employment law because the 
barrister um, who works with us, his name's Barry John Harwood Ferreira, he's an employment specialist, I think around sort of 17 years call or so, and that's been his practice. So obviously it makes sense um, with him being a pupillage supervisor to offer that first pupillage. You're offering uh, one that's going to be an employment-based pupillage, but I got the impression that in the future with the three, they're going to be spread across the practice areas that are available. Yes. So for our listeners who are thinking that this sounds like a really exciting opportunity, how do they apply for your one of your pupillages? So you, your listeners will know very well that there's essentially two ways to apply for, for pupillages. It's either non-gateway or gateway. Um, we don't, at this point anyway, we don't use the gateway. So the first time that we ran pupillage applications which was in October, November, we just advertised it through uh, LinkedIn. I think Legal Cheek got hold of it as well and, and sort of pushed it out there. But these things, uh, particularly once you mention the P word, it, it goes viral amongst, um, amongst students <laughs> yeah. because they're, they're, they're on the lookout for it. And of course. Of course they are. So you get inundated with applications. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Saha. Thank you very much. Thanks. Inspired by hearing about this new form of pupillage at DWF, we heard about another type of pupillage breaking away from the traditional mould. Alison Pickup came to talk to us about the rather special pupillage which is offered by the Public Law Project. Welcome Alison Pickup to the Pupillage Podcast. Would you like to tell our listeners please who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Alison Pickup. I'm the Legal Director of the Public Law Project currently. Um, I was previously at Doughty Street Chambers where I'm still an Associate Tenant. did my pupillage there and practised there before joining PLP. How long have you been at PLP? Just over two years. And what is PLP? PLP, the Public Law Project, is a national legal advice charity which aims to promote access to public law remedies for disadvantaged people. And are you involved with all parts of that? I lead the casework team there. So there's a team of solicitors, and one other barrister and a pupil. Um, and uh, so I'm primarily responsible for the casework and litigation, but obviously the lawyers also provide a lot of the, tra- the training and events and research side of it as well. So it was about two years ago that you decided that it would be a good idea to take pupils. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of pupillage you offer, how it might be similar to pupillage at, for example, Data Street, how it might might differ? Yeah, so one of the, obviously the main difference is that you're employed uh, as a pupil at PLP, so you're, you have a contract, you have paid holiday and sick pay, all those <laughs> things that holiday. self-employed barristers dream about, and a salary that comes into your bank account on a regular basis, oh, so that's one um, big difference. Another big difference is that you're working as part of a team of lawyers, so there are a number of qualified solicitors, we also have a trainee solicitor currently, and a paralegal, uh, yeah, one paralegal at the moment, so pupils at PLP get to see that side of legal practice as well as the barrister side. Um, We specialise in judicial reviews. Um, We tend to take sort of strategic and important test cases, so we tend to have quite a small caseload. So you probably see fewer cases, but more in-depth because you're seeing every part of the process from the client first contacting us for advice through to uh, the the sort of implementation of the judgment. And also, as well as the casework side, people be involved in project work at PLP so our pupils are both my the current pupil and last year's pupil are both um, justice first fellows so they're part of a funded uh, fellowship which is designed to increase opportunities to train in social welfare law which yes. is uh, set up by the legal education foundation 
and they fund training contracts for solicitors and also some pupillages. And the way that that model works at PLP for the first pupil, he spent his first year with us as a pupil and he's now got a year funded as part of that fellowship as an employed barrister. And then um, the other pupil spent his first year with us as a paralegal and is now doing his pupillage for a year. So they're both on a two-year fellowship. And how did they apply to you? So the Justice First Fellowship Scheme is a... It's, 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 there's a sort of centralised application process. So the hosts are recruited by the, by the Legal Education Foundation, which funds it. And then they have like an online application form that they complete. And it's designed to look for... Um, it's slightly different, I think, to a typical pupillage application in that it's they're looking for interest in and commitment to social welfare law. And so the kind of specialist questions that you might get with a with a general pupillage application are very much focused on kind of how have you shown your commitment to social welfare law and so on. We had, um, I can't remember exactly how many, it was definitely over 75 applications. Um, and we did a process of shortlisting and interviewing written tests, advocacy tests, and so on. Um, so they were applying to us for a pupillage. That was clear from the outset. Yeah. yeah. So people shouldn't think that this is an easy option because it's every bit as competitive as getting a pupillage at the independent or the employed bar. Getting that way, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much, Alison Pickup. After hearing from Alison, we wanted to hear more about the Public Law Project's pupillage. So who better to ask than one of their Justice First Fellows himself? You might remember hearing from Matt Alawalia in the advocacy episode. Here we asked how he came to choose his rather unusual pupillage. What was it about the Public Law Project that attracted you to um, look for their pupillage? I first came into contact with PLP when I was doing the BPTC um, because I used to volunteer in the events uh, and communications team. So I was helping out at the conferences. Um, and through that, I got to know some of the casework team and started volunteering a little bit on some of the bits of casework. Um, and so I've always been, uh, you know, since then I've been familiar with the sort of work that they do. And as I got more into social welfare law and social security law in particular, um, it seemed like a absolutely, you know, a, a, the the perfect place to train and to begin my legal career. Um, it enabled me to develop skills and knowledge in an area that I was already familiar with, but also to push myself further which is exactly what you want in pupillage I think to, to try and stretch yourself and challenge yourself and learn about oh, areas of so. law that yeah. you know you know you're not as comfortable with when you were applying for your pupillage and presumably you knew that there was this other dimension to it that you were going to need to have the initiative to develop your own project so is that something that you needed to be prepared to explain to the to the committee who are interviewing you yeah that was a, that was a part that was a, a part of the application form but also a part of the final interview stage was the sort of pitch for this particular project so that was when i, I had the chance to explain how i thought it was going to work um in person i see so for, for those of our listeners who have got some good ideas of their own this would be an absolutely fantastic place in in which to to explore them and to see them realised if possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, particularly if you've got a, a certain organisation in mind in the area that you're looking at, because from talking to the other um, trainees on the scheme, the most effective projects are the ones that don't completely rewrite the structure of the organisation, but that work within what the organisation is already doing and sort of you know increase capacity for what they're current workloads can can take um and so it's a good way of demonstrating that you have 
research properly what this organisation is about and why they're why, why you want to work for them. Matt Alawalu, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics. Darren Latty for coffees and pastries and Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. We'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk, Mark Waller, who've not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to Middle Temple for recording sessions. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast.